The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Alberto Savoia. Now, Alberto began his career as an engineering executive and CTO for companies like Sun Microsystems, Sun Labs, and was the first engineering manager to be hired by Google. He prided himself on engineering and execution excellence, a pride of building things right. Yet, as he started to explore his own startups, he realized that while building things right was important, was it really figuring out what was the right thing to build? Yeah, for me, the key moment was to realize that after 10, 15 years of practice, I knew how to build software. I knew how to build really good software that worked. I knew how to build it right. But I've also learned that 70 to 80% of the time, I built the software right, but it wasn't the right software to build. And this, whether it was at my own startup or projects or Google, so I realized what a waste it is that I'm spending my time and my developers' time for a couple of years working nights and weekends and we build this beautiful product, we test it so it works great, and then we launch it and the market simply does not care about it. So I shifted my focus from learning and making sure that I build things right to making sure that I'm building the right things, which in the end I believe is the most important thing because the most valuable resource we have are entrepreneurs, inventors, innovators, developers, people who can build things. And if these people build the wrong things, that is a colossal waste of time. Have you been fortunate enough to be part of some of these both successes and failures, building industry-changing products such as Sun Microsystems Workstation, Sun Labs Java, and Google's AdWords, working on startups that he launched and built himself, he realized that there was a better way. And really, what we needed to focus on was figuring out what's the right it to build, rather than just focusing on building it right. As we will see, most of the things they build do not end up being successful. So what was one of those moments when you did build a software that you were so proud of, perfect to the requirements you were given, the best engineering you'd ever done, and then it went out there? And no one used it. What was one of those sort of uh, moments for you? Yeah, I was very lucky. I thought I was the golden boy because my first startup work, and then I joined Sun Microsystem as an early employee, and that was very successful. And within Sun Microsystem, I started a business unit called SunTest that was very successful. Then I did my first startup that was very successful. In 18 months, we turned a $3 million VC fund into a $100 million acquisition. Then I went to Google and worked on AdWords that was very successful. So I thought I was... Golden. I thought I was the Italian Steve Jobs, <laughs> Stefano Giobini. So up until that time, uh, failure hadn't touched me. So I had all this hubris and I thought, okay, now I'm going to leave Google because Google's going to do fine with or without me, which in fact it did. And going to do this other startup and I had this great idea for a test automation tool. And we did a lot of due diligence. We knew we could build it. We signed up with the best VCs in the Valley, Sequoia Capital, and NEA. And everybody we explained the idea to told us, 
if you build it, we will buy. This will be the greatest thing ever. So we weren't foolish. I wasn't going to invest time in this. And the VCs, especially, they thought we're going to do all our due diligence because this is going to take two years to develop. So we did that. We built exactly what we said we were going to build because we knew that was not a challenge. And then we launched it. And all those people who told us, if you build it, we will buy, somehow did not materialize. I mean, to be fair, we sold $20 million worth of the software, but we would have had to sell 200 million. So we were off by a factor of 10 in people telling us, yes, I will buy it. And the people who actually did buy it. So this is almost like a seminal unlearning moment for you in many ways. Like a lot of it, what we talk about is the behaviors that made you successful in the past can start to limit your success in the future. And, you know, you've been on this you know, phenomenal run of opportunities and making the most of those opportunities and, and seeing some amazing results. And then you have this moment. So how did that impact you? How did that make you then start to reevaluate or sort of look back on what were the things you might need to do differently to be successful? Yeah, in the I, I, as you put in your book, I thought, and actually you write it even in my book, I thought I had the formula, right? Come up with a great idea, assemble a great team, get the best VCs that you can find, build it well, and then bang, either IPO or a big acquisition. I thought I had the formula. And when it didn't work, it's as if someone pulled the rug from my entire pyramid of thought. It's as if two plus two did not equal four anymore. And so, it's a shock, I imagine, right? And uncomfortable. It was a shock. It was uncomfortable. It was five years of my life. It was $25 million of VC money and several years of about 100 people that worked on this company. So it's a big bite, as I call it. The, the beast <laughs> of failure took a nice chunk of my butt uh, for five years. And so I had to go back yeah. and try to figure out where did I go wrong? You know, and using in your own term, you know, what do I have to unlearn? And you know, before I decided what to unlearn, I have to figure out where did I go wrong? I know exactly what that problem was. After thinking about it for a year and talking to a lot of people and looking it down is this realization that making sure you're building the right it before you build it right. And the key unlearning there, the key things that you have to change that seemed to work in the past and didn't work anymore is how do you do your market research? How do you convince yourself that the market really wants your idea? And we can talk in more detail if you want about my conclusions there. Well, the thing that's very interesting to me is I know how important data is for you in the way that you work and reflection also as a tool, like looking at the sort of results from the work that you did that didn't drive the results you want. How did that help you recognize where some of the problems were or some of the areas you needed to unlearn? Well, I had to probe in many areas because here's the interesting thing. When you ask people, why do you think your idea failed? By the way, let's agree that there is no question that most new projects, most new businesses, most new ventures fail, right? That's, that's about 80%. Yeah. But the question is, why, right? Before you can unlearn it and fix it. So ask a lot of people who had failures. And by the way, if you ask people about failure, they love telling you about it. It's just like showing scars, you know, not like the scene in Jaws, right? Say, hey, look at my scar. You know, you think you lost it big as I wasted $100 million. It became kind of a game of upmanship. And so... Depending on who I ask, so if I ask marketing points to engineers, engineers may be points to sales, so on and so forth. But here's the interesting thing. After we go through the surface finger pointing, which always happens, right? Because when you fail, 
people point finger all the place. Yeah, the product was bad, the marketing was bad, the sales was bad. Eventually, people came to the conclusion that, you know, our marketing wasn't that bad. The engineers were good. The sales team was good. We just built the wrong product. And that was an epiphany for most people. And the other epiphany is that if the product you're building is what I call the right, it will find a way to succeed in the market. Some people say, well, we failed because our company ran out of money and the VCs weren't going to give us any more money. But I've never heard in the history of VCs that if you have a company with traction and a good product, they don't stop giving you money. It's that you've just built the wrong product. So that, for me, was how I nailed down and identified the main culprit. It's interesting to me because one of the things we talk a lot about on learning is ultimately you have to own it. You have to own the results you've got. And until you're able to step into that, instead of pointing fingers or blaming other people and actually saying, you know, this is on us. We created this, so therefore it's on us to fix it. It's a really powerful mechanism. And I think until people can get to that, they really struggle with ownership, actually, of the situation. And once you own it, you can start to do things about it. So you started to do things about it. Tell me a little bit more about these marketing points. You have to own it. And you have to start to do something that is very hard. I would say at the very beginning, the big bang of unlearning in my world is to realize that chances are 80% or so that the current version of your idea or your idea overall is not likely to succeed. Talk about unlearning, you know, going from these things. If we build it, they will come, right? Or failure is not an option. These are all things. Winners never quit. Quitters never win. These are all things that we learn. They're so ingrained in us. And you think, well, you know, this is my idea. It's going to succeed, you know, and if it doesn't succeed at first, I will just pound through it until it succeeds. So for me, the biggest learning is when I have an idea, I look at it and say, I like this idea, but chances are that it will not succeed. And instead of seeking validation from the market, I try to get them to prove me wrong that this is the wrong idea, right? So in, because otherwise we apply confirmation bias. I have an idea, I ask 10 people what they think about it, and I only listen to the people tell me it's a great idea and the people think it's a stupid idea. They're just bozos that don't understand what's going on. And I think this is the biggest thing that you have to shift, the biggest unlearning and relearn, right? Just relearn how to do market research. First, step one, understand and believe that your idea is not special just because it's your idea. Assume that it will fail. And just like, you know, in a court of criminal law, you're innocent until proven guilty, right? By preponderance of the evidence. When it comes to the law of market, market failure, assume that your idea is going to fail unless you collect enough hard data to overturn that initial expectation. So I assume that my idea failed and then I do experiments to prove me wrong, which is very hard to do at first because instead of proving your baby's pretty, you're to say, well, your baby's not going to succeed in the market. One of my favorite parts of this show is sort of debunking a lot of what is considered conventional wisdom. And this idea of optimizing to be wrong rather than optimizing to be correct is actually so profound, right? And at the heart of the scientific method, right? You have a hypothesis, do everything you can do to try and invalidate it. And if you can't invalidate it, it's probably a good hypothesis. So what are some of the experiments then as you started to recognize this method in software and market testing. Like, What were some of the stories and things that you attempted to bring this idea to life? Right. So using recent examples, so in flipping things around, 
So one of the techniques I've learned is, and idea doesn't seem to work, instead of making little minor nudges, what if I flip it completely around? So my first experiment was the following, shifting the mode of research from asking this question, market research. Most people approach market research with the following template. If we build this, will you buy it? So they ask the market that. Much like you did when you went to the VCs. Exactly. That's exactly what we did. And this was a big shock. We talked to VPs from some of the big companies of engineering. Said, yes, sounds like a very good idea. It was due diligence. In turn, in retrospect, it was due negligence, <laughs> right? Because all those people gave us were promises and opinions. So asking the market, if we build it, will you buy? And then filtering through cherry picking the data that you like and kind of conveniently discarding the other leads you to building it. And then you go and sell it and you find out that the market lied to you. So the first thing I did was to flip it around the expression, if we build it, we will buy it to 180 degrees. If you buy it, I will build it. Which at this point, you're starting to ask the market for what I call skin in the game, right? So as an entrepreneur and inventor, when you decide to quit a job and you know get a circle mortgage, get money from VC and build something for five years, you put a lot of your own skin in the game. Most of your flesh. But the market doesn't give you any skin in the game. No, they just give you opinions and promises. So I want to resolve this asymmetry. And I want to go and approach the market with the following deal. Look, it's not that I don't believe that you're interested in what I'm going to build. But before I make all this commitment, I would like you to give me something more solid than a promise or a thumbs up that you will build it. Now, the question becomes, can I get someone to buy my idea before I build it? Now, it's a little bit more difficult than just asking for opinion. That's why it's hard to unlearn, right? You have to relearn it. But it can be done. And the best example that everybody knows about it these days is Elon Musk with Tesla. So check out this setup, right? So first of all, can we agree, Barry, that starting a car company is about one of the, the biggest initial investments you could do. Do we yeah, agree on that? I, I can only think of airlines as tougher. Yeah, Yeah, probably airlines, yes. Yeah, but airlines like Virgin, you can start with one plane, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you really cannot set up a car. So I would say the auto industry is I, arguably one of the... I'll agree, I'll agree, absolutely. Biggest risk, so a lot of skin in the game and also a history of failure. So here's a crazy proposition that Elon Musk had initially, right, with the Tesla Roadster. He's trying to ask the market if they will spend $120,000 to buy an all-electric car, which is only a two-seater, which requires a charger in the garage, and at the time for which there were no charging stations. So essentially, you have a $120,000 pocket rocket that goes, you know, zero to six in three seconds, but you can only drive... <laughs> time to the shops and back. 50 miles. <laughs> so you can imagine that before putting that much skin in the game for such an unlikely proposition you want to make sure that the market really wants it. And I think what Elon Musk did and continues to do to this day, which is brilliant, is to say, tell the market, it's not that I don't trust that you would like my idea, but I want something more than trust and promises. So you have to put down a $5,000 check to get in line and wait 18 months to two years to get your car. Now, we agree that's a lot of skin in the game, but think about it. If somebody gives you $5,000 for a car that they won't see for two years to a guy that has never built a car company before and on top of it is all electric, which none of the other companies succeeded, would you say that's a strong indication that they want it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like, it's much stronger than a thumbs up. Yeah, it's 5,000 times stronger, infinitely stronger than a thumbs up. One of the things that I use in my analysis, I call it the skin in the game meter. Right. 
because I like to put things into numbers. So if you give me an opinion, zero points, skin in the game points, right? Thumbs up, zero skin in the game points. Now, if you give me your valid email address with a clear understanding that I will use it to market to you, I give it that one skin in the game point, right? Because you give your address to anybody that asks? No. No, right. So it means an interesting commitment. If people commit 30 minutes of their time to listen to my pitch, I count that as 30 points, a point per minute. But the ultimate value, the ultimate type of skill in the game, if you're in the business in commerce, is actual money. So $5,000 deposit counts for me as 5,000 skin in the game point. And let me ask you this. If you're an investor, would you rather see a 30-page business plan or a one-page business plan with 30 checks for $5,000 stapled to it? Which one would convince you more? Well, this is what I love about your system. You're flipping it. And this is, again, conventional wisdom. Most people would go in with their business plan and their promise, but you're going in with evidence. And your skin in the game meter is a great sort of signal and leading indicator of evidence. It's a pull system. Customers are pulling value from you and they're parting with money to demonstrate that. It's exceptional. Well, thank you, Barry. Yeah, it's exceptional. It works. I want to be honest. I did not invent these techniques. You know, I just looked around for people who seem to have solved the problem. And my job is to curate them, put them together, give them memorable names and like memorable terms so people don't ever forget them. And by the way, conventional thinking and techniques lead to what? Conventional results. What are the conventional results in business? 80% or so of new business ventures or new products from existing business venture fail. So conventional process leads you to conventional results. You don't want to be conventional in this case. Yeah, and it really comes across how you're applying this thinking to everything you approach, whether it's software, whether it's products, whether it's your daily life. You're looking at the data and seeing that it is contrary to popular opinion, and you're using that data to inform your action, changing your behaviors, like shifting your thinking and your behaviors to different ways. So instead of pushing products to the market with business cases and assumptions and hypothesis never tested, as you say, you're flipping these ideas and you're looking for evidence that there's strong signal, strong commitment before you even start to build. So what are some of the other techniques? I know um, in your book, you've got a whole playbook of different ideas and techniques that people can use to start to test in this way. Right. So I call this set of techniques prototyping, which is a term that uh, many people love, a few people dislike, but then they say, why don't you just use the term prototype? Well, let me tell you why. Because I'm an engineer. And if you come to me and you say, build me a prototype, I start buying hardware and firing up the soldering iron and plan to spend six months having fun building stuff, right? And so the idea of prototype, prototypes is something that you build before you even attempt to have something that works. Why? Because in most cases, we know we can build what we set out to build. Actually, I've yet to work on a project where we couldn't build what we originally set out to build. Now, if you come to me and tell me I'm building a time machine, I would be say, well, first prove me that it works and then we'll find out if there is a business case. Come on, there's a time machine in Google X somewhere. I know you know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> no comment. But for most things, I know I can build it. So is there any uncertainty there? No. Where is all the uncertainties is should we build it? So I thought, are there some techniques I can use to see if I should build an idea before I actually go and build it? Because that's where all the uncertainty is. So I started to look out at how people approach this problem. And I came up with the dozens of examples and dozens of prototyping that allow me to do precisely 
that. So I can give you my favorite example is you may remember the Palm Pilot, right? But the original PDN, the progenitor of our smartphone. Now, here's another story where somebody unlearned something. So Jeff Hawkins, who founded Palm, his previous venture was called the GridPad. And he spent, like me, five years and tens of millions of dollars to build this product that turned out to be too bulky, too expensive, and you know, wouldn't carry it around. So he was bit by what I call the beast of failure. And he thought, well, what if I make it small, something that fits in my pocket and just does a few basic things? Now, being an engineer, I knew he was itching to start building it. But he wanted to test his hypothesis and collect data, including data for himself. So what did he do? He got a little block of wood. He shaped it like the final form of the PDA. And he carried around. He made some paper sleeves with a user interface. So he went around pretending that this block of wood worked. So let's assume I'm Jeff Hawkins and say, hey, Barry, you want to go for sushi next week? I love sushi. Yeah, of course. Yeah, what day is good for you? Thursday? Thursday. So Jeff Hawkins pulls out this block of wood, tapping with a chopstick, and said, okay, great. Thursday. So, of course, the block of wood didn't do anything. It wasn't a working prototype. It was just a block of wood, just like Pinocchio, right? In fact, it's called a Pinocchio prototype. But what was he doing? He was collecting data. And the most valuable type of data, what I call Yoda, stands for your own data, as opposed to opinion or OPD, which is other people's data. So over the course of three or four weeks, he started to collect, said, well, piece of data number one, if I make it this size and it fits in my shirt pocket, I carry with me every day. Unlike the Apple Newton, which came out at the same time, and you really needed cargo pants or a man purse to carry around, right? So that really failed. So that was and the first piece. Neither of those do you really want to be seen in, let's be honest. No, not, yeah, not in these areas. In Europe, maybe you can pull out the man purse. So the Palm Pilot was very small. So first piece of data is make it small so it fits in the shirt pocket, right? It looks like a, a smartphone today. Then the other pieces of data collected is, well, what do I use this for? And it basically came down to four basic pieces of functionality as a calendar, as an address book, as a to-do list, and a quick and little note taker. So that's all it did. At the same time, the Apple Newton, which was the volume, like four times the volume didn't fit in the pocket, did handwriting recognition, it sent email, you could play chess, it could do a lot of things. It was driven by opinions and ideas, whereas Jeff Hawkins said, look, hey, this only does these four things, but these are four very useful things. So he collected his own data. And after he built this block of wood, which had zero functionality, but hence a prototype, right? He pretended that it worked and it's something that you build before the prototype. He went off, you know, and fired up the soldering iron and the compiler and he built the actual prototype. And the rest is history, right? The Palm Pilot was successful and it was the progenitor to all of our smartphones. That's a great example as well. And contrasting it with what other companies were doing at the time. But there's one point in there that really sort of resonated with me around this Yoda idea, your own data versus someone else's data. Now, often what we hear when people are building products is everyone's out in the market talking about what people are doing and how fast their business is growing. Yes, you know, with the only data I see that's really, really important, and I learned this the hard way, is when you're building new products and services, you've got to look at your own data relative to the growth that you're making rather than believe this opinion and often sales pitches that are out in the market. You know, I've seen a lot of times when people are building products, they're worried because their competitors are saying, oh, we're selling a million units or we're selling a hundred new people signed up for our app this week. And they're trying to almost like scare people in the market. And it's sort of fake information in many ways. 
Why isn't your own data or Yoda, as you call it, so important for entrepreneurs to focus on rather than worry about the opinions in the market? Right. Well, first of all, several categories. Opinions, we agree, they count for nothing. And people say, what about expert opinions? I'll say, well, maybe if the expert gives you a deposit or invests a million dollars, maybe it counts for something. But if all they give is their expert opinion, zero skin in the game points. Why? Because we know that experts are proven wrong as often as they're proven right. So completely dismiss it. So opinions do not count. Other types of data that people count as data, like you have a prop, say Alberto's amazing microphone, right? Makes you sound like very white. And I do a video and I put the video up and, you know, I get a million views because Alberto sounds like very white, you know, with a nice low voice. And then I say, well, I got a million views. This is going to be successful. No, that also doesn't count, right? That's still zero skin in the game point. It means that they're interested in seeing Alberto sound like Barry White, but it doesn't mean that the microphone will succeed. So all of those things have zero skin in the game points. But when it comes to data, I can take the stupidest thing and make it look into data. I mean, you throw any random numbers into a spreadsheet, it looks like data. I only count data that comes, as we discussed before, with skin in the game. And it has to be for your idea. Just because somebody in the past in another place succeeded with an or failed with an idea similar to yours doesn't mean that yours will succeed or fail. Going back to Elon Musk, if Elon had looked at all the other car companies that tried to launch an electric car, all of whom failed miserably, he would have said, well, if I look at that data, I better not touch an electric car. No, real innovators are just like they have blinders. So they look to the future. They don't look around to see, did they succeed? Did they fail? They collect their own data. And notice what Elon Musk did. I mean, it wasn't really that hard to ask people if they wanted to give him a check for $5,000, right? And we agree, that's as Yoda as it can get. He showed them one version of the roadster and said, if you want one of these in a couple of years, give me $5,000. That is your own data about your idea about the car that you're going to build. OPD, other people's data, is data collected by other people for other projects, with other methods, in other places, at other times. So you take all those things into consideration and you realize, yes, it's basically worthless. And here's the main thing, Barry. Collecting Yoda is quicker and cheaper than going and collecting other people's data. When I work with students, they go to the business library and they pull out all this data. You know, 10 million people have dogs and they spend an average of $400 a year on dogs. So therefore, it's a $400 million business, whatever. And then they collect all of this data completely meaningless, right? When if they have a new idea for a pet product, they could just build one prototype, go into a store. And the, here's the key. If you go to the right market, say people with dogs who go to a pet store, your sample size can be as small as 100 to be statistically significant, right? So if you think that 10% of people are going to buy Alberto's magic dog leash, I don't know, that does something there. If you go and you bring it into a store and you see people pick this idea up in the store, you don't need more than 100 people to get your first piece of valid data, right? You don't need thousands and thousands of people. Your experiment can be very small if you're collecting skin in the game. So again, interesting for me here is what I see a lot, especially when I'm working with senior leaders and teams is, the conventional wisdom is to outsource the market research. So we'll hire these big companies, these big consultancies that will go off and do all the thinking for you and invariably come back with the answer you wanted. But this experiential learning, so when I get senior people to design prototypes, 
or experiments and run them themselves. Hypothesis they have for a strategy for their company, a product for their company, and they show it to customers, which is uncomfortable for them a lot of the time. And customers tell them it sucks. It's the best market research they ever do because it sort of challenges their thinking. It shifts their mindset. They have assumptions that they believe from being experts working in these industries for 20 years that they believe are true, but often go untested. And this power of sitting down with customers, showing your ideas, testing your hypotheses, your assumptions, and actually learning that they're valid or invalid is a very powerful experience. But it's one of these things that kicks off the unlearning journey for them in many ways. And the ones I find who really accelerate are not the people who get upset and say that's the wrong customer or this person doesn't understand my product. The people who own those results and say there is a problem here. Thank you for that information. I'm going to improve my next iteration of this idea and progressively enhance it, make it better and better and better. And they're the people who are continuously learning and unlearning and get exceptional results. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. Things are changing so much. And that's why I think, especially these days, business plans are ridiculous. 20 years ago, a business plan with 10-year projection, especially ridiculous, right? Because things are changing too much. So you right, you have to continually probe the market, test, learn, and unlearn, right? 10 years ago, what was it? MySpace was hot, and then it was Facebook. And who knows what's going to happen next? So theoretically, yes, you can outsource this market research. But even if you do that, just make sure that it's peer-reviewed, right? And it happens continuously. It's not a one-shot deal. When the environment is continually shifting, you just have to learn and unlearn techniques all the time, you know, sometimes as frequently as once a quarter. I mean, definitely once a year because things are changing that rapidly. In that vein, what are some of the things you've had to unlearn and relearn about your approach to pre-detyping from when you first started it? I would say the biggest one is how do I convince a large organization to go for it? Because I know that my arguments are logical. In fact, I put them there from A to Z and tell them, okay, poke a hole in where there's something here that doesn't follow. Because I'm an engineer. To me, my logic is just like a circle. Right. So they can say, well, yeah, I cannot find any hole, right? This should work. And I tell them, no, no, not only should work, it cannot not work, right? A leads to B, B leads to C. So I thought, okay, well, I explained it to them. It's logical. It's all laid out. I can wash my hand, go away, and they're going to make it happen. Uh, wrong. <laughs> right. Just like bringing people to a gym and said, okay, there you do your squats, there you do the bench press. This is how you do it. Go up and down 20 times, three times, and then you're done. And then you leave and it happens. No. What I've learned is that it takes uh, time and dedication to get people to buy into it because organizations are very slow to unlearn. And so in putting this into practice, the biggest thing I've learned is start small. Start with one project and use not, again, don't use my data or Alberto's logical arguments, right? Because logic doesn't convince people that have been doing things the same way for 30 years. I mean, can you imagine how people who run focus groups respond when I present them my ideas? Yeah, I don't get much love, right? If looks could kill when they're in the room, they say, what do you mean focus groups here? The established tools, you know, we've been doing this for 30 years. So what I've learned to say, well, maybe use focus groups, but try to triangulate the evidence, right? So if the focus group said that people will buy peach-flavored beer, 
20% of people who choose peach flavor beer in a focus group said, all right, let us use that as our starting hypothesis. And then let's go and pick up some beer and put a label on it, pretending that, right, this is the beauty of prototyping, right? You don't actually have to pollute beer with peach juice. Right? <laughs> you can take a can of beer and you can just put a label that says peach flavored beer and see if people pick it up. And if nobody picks it up to even taste it, you've saved yourself a lot of time and saved yourself from wasting a lot of beer. So the way I've learned to convince people is to say, look, let's try it ourselves. Let's have your old ways combined to mine. And then after two or three times that they find out that they're what I call Thoughtland, the market research where you ask hypothetically in a focus group, if we put peach in beer, would you buy it? When they start to see that those results do not match the real world results, at that point, I think there's like a break in the learning and unlearning eyes, right? Because that's what you need. You need to crack the eyes of their prior mentality and your logic is not enough. They have to experience it firsthand. Then once you part the eyes the first time, it becomes easier. Yeah, this is a key point for me as well. I think one of the things, and again, another conventional wisdom is if we just think differently, suddenly people will start acting differently. If we just present logical arguments, surely people will change their behavior. And again, the piece to unlearn here again is you actually have to act your way to a new culture. You have to start doing things differently to see the world differently. And that's what challenges your mental model and shifts it. So again, I think what's fascinating about this approach of pre-detyping is it's making people take action to do something differently, to get the beer can and put a label on it. And that's an unfamiliar behavior for them, but then they see the sort of results that start to sh make them shift their thinking and go, well, actually, there's something here. Oh, I'm learning something differently that I wouldn't have learned from the way we're con currently operating. So I think this idea of acting your way to a new culture and using these methods that you're describing are really powerful to help shift mindset. And again, another thing to be unlearned. Yes, it's difficult. So in retrospective, I realized how much pain I had to go through myself to and learn the way to do market research and come up with this new model. So I cannot expect just to go with a solution to people and say, look, this is it. I've tried it. It will work for you. Trust me on that, right? And learning is a painful process because you feel like there is this sunk cost fallacy. Yeah, so it, it becomes hard, but you put in your book, it's necessary. It's not always pleasant, but it is necessary because if you don't unlearn these things that don't work, then you're going to be stuck and somebody will... Uh, put you in a position where you have nothing to learn anymore. So looking forward now, what are some of the things you're sort of excited about and where are you trying to take your thinking? So in the past, I focused on working with the companies that were building a new product. Sometimes in the past, I was helping very large and successful companies become even larger and more successful, which I still do. But I'm getting really excited. And the way I wrote the book, and if you look at many of the examples in the book, I'm aimed at the entrepreneurs, right? Because once again, I'm not just saying this because it's the right thing to say, but I do believe that entrepreneurs and innovators and people who build stuff are most valuable resource. Whatever problem we have, I believe somebody out there will come up with a clever way of solving it. So my focus is how do I get more and more entrepreneurs to learn about prototyping and my techniques so they don't spend the first five, six years of their life building projects that fail before they realize, oops, 
there must be a better way. So that's kind of my focus, making sure that entrepreneurs work on ideas that are likely to succeed. And, you know, it's a big mission. I think it's an important one. Yes. And you've been there, right? Like you were one of the first people to join Google. Like You started your own companies on the back of that many times. So what little piece of advice do you have for entrepreneurs as they start? Do not depend on luck, right? And assume failure. Your initial thinking should not be failure is not an option. should be failure is the most likely option for any given idea. But here's the trick. Just like going and bet, you go in and gamble. And imagine there's a wheel of fortune where, let's say, even 90% of the time you fail, but the one time you win. So 10% of the time you make, let's say, $20 your investment, right? So the stupid way to do that is to just play one round, right? You just go one round, you have a 10% chance of succeeding. But if you have enough money to keep spinning the wheel, eventually you will succeed. So any one idea you might have is likely to fail. But if you iterate and go through several ideas, eventually you will find one that succeeds. But that's not playing by luck. That's playing in a very systematic way. I agree, you know, and it's similar like as you're trying to unlearn. The more you try new things, it becomes a virtuous cycle of helping you continually iterate to find the behaviors you want to drive the outcomes that you need. That's right. And ultimately, unlearning is learning, right? Because you think X was five before, and now X is four, you've just learned something new. So just like many things in life, right? It flips around. Unlearning is learning. It just takes courage to flip it around. And that's, I think, one of the things that you and I have in common, right? Rather than saying, hey, you need to learn a new skill, you say, well, how about you unlearn this? And by the way, I'm Roman. I'm from Rome. Italians have this approach. It's called via negativa, where you subtract things rather than add. And not just, I guess, in Rome. I guess even in Zen, don't they say you have to empty your vessel, your cup, before it can be filled again. So I think it's a very important thing. Don't just add stuff. Start by removing stuff. And I would say that's one of the tricks to unlearning. Alberto, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. A couple of takeaways for me are these debunking of many conventional wisdoms to optimize to be wrong rather than right to help you learn faster. Really interesting. I love the concept of Yoda, like focusing on your own data as you learn rather than the noise of the market. Really powerful. And um, our idea that a logical argument isn't necessarily going to make people change their behavior but getting them to do things, to pre-to-type, to try, and see the results of those new behaviors to shift mindset um, really resonate both with me and a lot of the concepts that we share and unlearn. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Barry. It's been my pleasure to share these ideas with you. Thanks a lot.